Welcome to Orange Crest Community Church and OCCathome.com. We are so glad you're here. At OCC, our mission is to invite people to take their next steps with Jesus. And so we pray that through our time together, you're encouraged and challenged to move forward in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to Orange Crest Community Church. My name is Pastor Josh De La Rosa, and we're continuing on in this series of messages as we journey with Jesus up mountains, beside the sea, and today we're going to spend some time really down in the valley with him. And so our series called Mountains, Valleys, and the Moments in Between, we're looking at the Gospels, really the stories, the biographies of Jesus, and walking along with him, listening to his stories, and, and really trying to get an understanding of life with him. Now, we've been mentioning how life down in the valley is really where it's sort of the real gritty uh it's where real life happens. It's it's where the challenges are. It's where the even the joys are, though. It's it's where we live our lives. And for those in the first century, this is where they did life. They uh, their houses were there. They worked there. They traded there. They discussed matters there. This is still true for us today. Now, the the area we've been looking at, where Jesus mainly launched his ministry, spent most of his first year, uh, was in a town called Capernaum. Here's a map again, just to give you a reference. It was in the region of Galilee, in the northern part of Israel, and this was where Jesus, he spent a good amount of his time relationally and even just doing ministry, doing life there in Capernaum. Uh, just It's just north of the sea, and it was a fishing town uh, right there beside the edge of the water, and here's an aerial view of Capernaum, and uh, there's basically just ruins there now, ancient ruins, and they've uh, excavated some of it, but folks in those days, they lived off the land. They they would catch their food there in the sea, great fishing there, and they would grow their own food as well. They they knew how, how to work uh, with their hands. They were skilled at their work, at their trade. Uh, now, that was the location where Jesus actually began his, uh, his ministry team. He formed a team there, and the movement began right there in Capernaum. Now, people in those days lived very close to each other. If you look at this sort of this ancient, uh, the, the ruins of Capernaum, just a close-up. You can sort of envision a town there. You can see sort of the outlines of roads and, and the walls of houses, and, and uh, but they were very close to each other. And so this was communal living in, in many ways. This, this is where people would connect. They would know each other. Uh, they were acquainted with, with one another. Uh, this was not like our major cities with hundreds of thousands of people, uh, the archaeologists who've who've dug out these uh, ancient cities and even excavating the the area right there in Capernaum estimate that there was probably around 1,500 people in that town. And so, in our uh, you know comparative uh, sense, this is a very very small town, small group of people. I don't know that any of you grew up in a town of 1,500 people. Many of us grew up in uh, you know tens of thousands, if not over 100,000, in our town. Uh, but if you can sort of wrap your mind around uh, this idea of a small, small town behind, uh, beside the sea. Also, because of the great fishing, this was a prosperous town. People from other regions would come and they would trade uh, with these fishermen. And so this was a way to get other goods and services provided to them right there. And so now if you were to go there today, uh, the Roman Catholic Church holds the rights on part of the land, which has mostly been excavated in that in that region right there. Uh, the Greek Orthodox Church holds the rest of, of the area. Now, much of that is actually still underground. It's not being excavated. They, they don't intend to excavate it. Uh, I think there's a preference that the 
Greek Orthodox side would just stay more tranquil and really would be almost like a, a place for pilgrims to come and pray. And so uh, if you were to go there today, you'd likely be on the uh, side that is held by the Catholics. And so there's a Franciscan Catholic church. Uh, here's a picture of it. It is currently right over uh, the site believed to be where Peter lived. And so uh, you could, if you were to go into that church, um, you would look in the middle and you would see, you'd be able to see down uh, below a glass floor and you could see down into the ancient uh you know, part of of, of the uh, that town, you could see where they've excavated, and you could see the the walls of a house. And uh, they believe this is really the remains of Peter's house. And they're they've discovered inscriptions, and just history points people to draw that conclusion. Now, uh, we shared Peter's story uh, a few weeks ago. He's a name that comes up a lot in the story uh, line of Jesus and his his followers. Now, he he left his nets. He's a fisherman. And he left his nets along with his brother, and the two of them went and followed Jesus. After Jesus helped him pull in a huge catch of fish, uh, right after they had been fishing all night long and hadn't caught anything, uh, Jesus called Peter and his brother Andrew to become fishers of men. He said, from now on, we're going to be reaching people. And Peter left his nets. Now, most think that Peter's house was uh, the ministry base of Jesus's. Uh, of Jesus and his followers during that time in Capernaum. And it's likely true. Uh, this place had special significance uh, for Peter's family. Like, for example, take a look at, at Mark chapter 1, verse 29. It reads, As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever. And they told him about her at once. So he went to her. He took her by the hand and he raised her the scripture says that the fever left her and she began to serve them. So she's not just uh, going to feel better because Jesus prayed for her. No, he heals her. And in that moment, she gets up and she starts fixing a meal for them. Right there in Capernaum, right in Peter's house. And then look at this, verse 32, still in Capernaum. When evening came after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door. Now, don't miss that statement. The whole town, meaning everyone in Capernaum was right there. Everyone knew what was happening. They were right there at the door. And it says in verse 34 that he healed many who were sick in various diseases and drove out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, these displays of power just kept occurring. For example, we talked a few uh, weeks ago about Jesus delivering his most famous sermon, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And we find that in, in the book of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. We looked at that, uh, I think, two weeks ago. And again, here's a picture of the Sermon on the Mount site that we had uh, given. It just it sort of highlights that he would draw people up from the valley and they would head into the just the mountainside so he could capture their attention. He taught on the kingdom of God there. Now, after the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it, it describes that Jesus uh, approaches or was approached by a Roman centurion. So in Matthew chapter 8, a Roman centurion, someone who had command over uh, troops for the Roman Empire, came to Jesus with a request, and he asked Jesus, Would you please heal my servant? And Jesus marveled at this man's faith, and Jesus actually healed the man. Let's look at the passage from Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 10. It reads, 
When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. He said to him, Am I to come and heal him? This is what Jesus asked. Look at the reply. Lord, the centurion replied, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. Now let's skip down to verse 13. Then Jesus told the centurion, Go, as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very moment. Can you even imagine the excitement and the wonder as people are experiencing these healings and they're watching what Jesus is doing? And this news is just spreading all through the region. So people are just flooding in from all through that area of Israel, northern Israel. And, and, and Jesus, he's not slowing down. He continues to heal. And with all of this, Jesus advanced with frequent power moves. He, he put his power on display. Now, have you ever heard this phrase before, power moves? It's, it's got some comical ideas tied to it. Typically, the idea of a power move is, is tied to one of these areas, like a business power move. I got this list from uh, business.com. Here's eight power moves to close any sale. So for those of you that are in sales, these are probably things you try. Keep your chin up. Uh, lend a hand, meaning you know, handshake while looking the person in the eyes. Uh, sit pretty, like don't slouch or get sloppy. Well, that's hard for me. I always tend to find myself slouching. Uh, take up space, meaning uh, like... Think large, like think pufferfish large, like get get large in the room. Uh, pull them in, like you're trying to show an engaged body language when when you're communicating. Uh, put on a happy face. This is again hard for me. I tend to probably not be this most smiley uh, person. Or, or get on their good side, you know, like swing around to the same side of the table with them when you're showing them a picture or, or an article. Or, or palm it off, like when you're talking to them. Keep keep your hands open. Have have open-handed gestures. So these eight things are supposed to be the power moves to close any sale. That's oftentimes where you hear this term, power move. But there's power moves in other areas, like, for example, dancing. Specifically, breakdancing. There's power moves, breakdancing moves. Here's one of them. I could never do that. I would get, I would get hurt. I, I'd never try to do that. Uh, I remember when I was, I think, right around finishing up high school, there was this video game called Power Move pro wrestling and you could do all sorts of power moves like the sleeper hold and the suplex and the camel clutch and the boston crab and and on and on top rope moves Uh, anyway (laughs) those are power moves or power moves for your personal life Uh, like a power move in your personal life is like taking a huge attempt at at changing your circumstances like getting that second job to save some money so you can launch a business the the thing you've been thinking about doing in the back of your mind for a long time or or uh, selling all your clothes, I read. Here's a power move, personal life power move. Sell all your clothes and hire a trainer to force you to drop two sizes. That's bold. I mean, that's a power move. Well, these are all strategies in our world to gain power. And some of us, we would even say that those are shortcuts. Uh, here's the thing. Jesus didn't need to use any of those strategies. He didn't need the help. He didn't need to read the articles. He didn't need the tips. Jesus was God in the flesh. His movement was spreading unlike any other because he commanded power and authority 
unlike anyone ever had. Now, when he determined to show his power, nothing could stand in his way. And I want to highlight three areas where Jesus did this in the region of Galilee, in this town of Capernaum. Jesus put his power on display first over sickness. Let's keep going in the book of Matthew, Matthew 9, verse 18. I'll read you some verses of Jesus showing his love and care and his compassion for people who were dealing with some health issue. Here's Matthew 9, verse 18 and on. Let's just read some stories of Jesus healing and showing his power over people over sickness as people were struggling with some health issue. So Matthew 9:18, as he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him. And this is an act of, of submission. This is a request, clearly. And so he's bowing down before him, in a sense, and he's begging him, saying, My daughter just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Now, some of you can get right into the story. You have a child. You may even have a daughter. I, I do. And so this is a, a request from a desperate father. So Jesus, verse 19, and his disciples, they got up and they followed him. Verse 20, just then a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and he saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. And when Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players. So now this is, he's arrived at the person's house whose daughter has died. He sees these flute players in a crowd lamenting loudly. There's just, uh, there's warning. Uh, there's, there's crying. Um, they've sort of begun the processional of, of, of grief. Verse 24, leave, he said, because the girl is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. But after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand and the girl got up. Then news of this spread throughout that whole area. Jesus has the power to bring people back to life. I mean, who does that? Look at verse 27 as we go on. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men approached him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Let it be done for you according to your faith. And their eyes were open. And then Jesus warned them sternly, Be sure that no one finds out. <laughs> but look, verse 31. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout the whole area. <laughs> they can't contain themselves. They, they, they were blind. Now they can see. They're telling everybody they know. They're telling their friends. They're telling their family. They're so overjoyed. And so Jesus... In this town, he is just, he is encountering people, much like in our day and age, who are, who are dealing with some physical health issues. And Jesus had the power to heal them. Now, Jesus also put his power on display over nature. Let's look at from Mark, or from Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. And this is all around the same uh, time. And so chronologically, I've been trying to give these messages and sort of walk through parts of his story chronologically. So this is right around the same time um, as these other miracles are happening. Luke 8:22. One day he and his disciples got into a boat and he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they're 
getting into uh, a boat on the Sea of Galilee right there. So they set out, and as they were sailing, he fell asleep. Then a fierce windstorm came down on the lake. They were being swamped and were in danger. Swamped meaning water is coming and filling the boat. They came and they woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're going to die. We're going to drown. We're taking on too much water. Let me think about how you must have felt. Then it says, then he got up and he rebuked the wind. He, he spoke sternly to the weather, to the wind itself and the raging waves. He rebukes them sternly. And so they ceased. They meaning the wind and the waves. And there was a calm. So all of a sudden it goes from this stormy conditions on the sea to now flat, calm waters. And he said to them, looks at his, at his disciples, where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, asking one another, who then is this? He commands even the winds and the waves, and they obey him. He has authority over the weather. And who can do that? Who who has the power like that? Now here's the third area. First we've seen healing or him having power over sickness, then over really nature, and then third and and really an undeniable display of Jesus and his power was over the demonic. So back to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter eight. He has these power encounters where people have been uh, taken over uh, by the enemy. And here's one of them, Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. When he had come to the other side, to the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us? Son of God, have you come here to torment, torment us before the time? A long way off from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. If you drive us out, the demons begged him, send us into the herd of pigs. So the demons are speaking to Jesus through these men. They inha- they're inhabiting uh, from the inside these men, and now they're using these men's voices, and, and they're, they're talking to Jesus. And they're pleading. They're pleading. They want... They, they know they're going to be driven out by Jesus and they're begging that they would go into these pigs. Verse 32, go, he told them. So when they had come out, they entered the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. Then the men who tended them fled. They went into the city and reported everything, especially what had happened to those who were demon possessed. And that the whole town went out to meet Jesus. Or at that, the whole town went out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Verse chapter 9 in Matthew, verse 32. Just as they were going out, another situation, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought out to him. And when the demon had been driven out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were saying, were amazed, saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. So now this demon has a stronghold that would prevent this man from talking. This person was mute. He was unable to speak. And so uh, the demon's influence on this man um, had, a, had a, a, a deep, deep stronghold uh, of, and, and control over him. And people realized, well, nothing like this has ever happened here. This, this, we, we know who these people are. 
We've seen their behavior before, and now they've been transformed. They're changed. Verse 34 reads this, But the Pharisees said this, He drives out demons by the ruler of demons. It's such a strange conclusion that they had drawn. I want to show you a very similar passage. I mean, you flip over to Mark chapter 3. I want to spend some time in this passage. Mark chapter 3, uh, beginning with verse 20, says this, Jesus entered a house, now this is in Capernaum, and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. Again, you just see a very similar scenario. Life in the valley is brimming uh, with excitement. People want to see Jesus. There's no room to eat, let alone even move around. People were just pressing in. Verse 21 reads, When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him. Now, his family, we talked about this. Jesus uh, was raised in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth. Same region, so in Galilee, near Capernaum, not too far away. And so his family came up from Nazareth. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 3, actually reveals some of the names of his siblings. So after, so Jesus was the firstborn, and after he was born, uh, Mary and Joseph had other children. And so in, in Mark chapter 6, we learn the, the names of some of his siblings. You have James, you have a man named Joseph, you have Judas, also known as Jude, and then you have Simon. Uh, also, it says that there's some sisters as well. So we, we can't even imagine what this would have been like to grow up with Jesus. I mean, try to wrap your mind around that. He was the firstborn of this group, uh, but what we do know is he lived a sinless life. Uh, he knew what was right. He did what was right, and he did that all of the time. <laughs> so uh, I only have one sibling, and, and we have all sorts of competition between us growing up. I, I remember... Uh, she pretty much smoked me every time in the grades. So I don't think I ever probably had a better a report card or in high school my grades were not nearly as good as hers were. But beyond that, anytime there was a, an award to be won or a competition, we were competing to see who would get that award. Uh, Jesus, however, you know, he didn't get into that. If there was pride in his family or competition, he wasn't uh, he didn't get involved in that. He, he didn't sin. So he didn't get into pride. He didn't get into competition. He wasn't retaliatory with his siblings. We, we don't know the details necessarily, but we can imagine how ostracized he must have been growing up with siblings who were not perfect. And so think about the frustration. If, if you're one of the siblings of Jesus and you struggle in life and you're, you're sinful and you, you sometimes get jealous and competitive and you sometimes have angry outbursts and then you have Jesus here. The perfect one. Just think about the annoyance at times, the frustration, uh, the, the, the struggle that would be. So this group of siblings, they're all younger than Jesus, they come to Capernaum because they hear about what Jesus is doing. And, and it reads this. It says in verse 21, when his family heard this, they set out to restrain him. Uh, this word in the Greek just means they've come, they're, they're there, they're going to use their force to uh, almost like rescue him, to physically restrain and rescue him and take him probably back to Nazareth because they said he's out of his mind. Essentially, what is Jesus up to now? I mean, he was sort of that, uh, the odd one in the family in that he, 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 he was perfect. 
And, and they couldn't probably wrap their mind around it. It was so different from what they were all used to. Well, what's he up to now? What is he stirring up? He's, he's beside himself. He, they thought maybe he's on the edge of insane. Which, for, come on, family. Come on, brothers and sisters. Jesus is bringing to this region all sorts of help. He's bringing freedom. He's bringing genuine care. Uh, he, is, he is bringing good to people, to families. He's restoring what has been broken. He's recovering what has been lost. You know, and they're getting all these highlights and they're slightly concerned for his safety because of this multitude that is is, uh, intent on seeing Jesus. So they go in there and they're trying, you know, they want to restrain him. He's out of his mind, they're saying. Essentially, he's gone crazy. Verse 22, the scribes, now these were the official teachers of the law, it says, who had come down from Jerusalem, they said this, he is possessed by Beelzebul. This literally means the Lord of the flies or or the Lord of the trash heap. It's like uh, the flies would swarm at the dump. He's the Lord of the flies. This was a major, major insult. Uh, by this time, that's what that word literally means, but by this time, this was really a reference to Satan. Uh, and so they're saying, he's possessed by Satan. And then, and then they say he he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. They're saying he gets his power from Satan himself. He's possessed by Satan himself. To which Jesus begins to speak parables in response. So look at verse twenty-three, because they're basically questioning his power and authority at this point. So it says he summoned them. Here, come here, guys. Come here. He's saying this to the scribes. He summoned them and he spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? He basically highlights the sheer absurdity of their claim. Then he uses an illustration to make his point. Look at verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If, if these acts, Jesus is saying, if these acts right here, these things I'm doing, if these were acts of Satan, why would he destroy his own works? That makes no sense. Why would Satan's kingdom be focused on destroying its own works and dismantling his power structure? And then verse 26, And if Satan opposes himself, Jesus continues, and is divided, he cannot stand, but is finished. Like, why would... This makes no sense. Jesus is just showing them how absurd their conclusion statements really are. Verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless, well, unless he ties up, unless he first ties up the strong man. What's he saying here? This is, this is what a thief would have to do, Jesus is saying. Thieves, they break into your house, they plunder, they steal, but in order to do that, they have to overpower and restrain those who occupy the house. They have to restrain the strong man living there because only the strong man, you know, the strongest of the house is going to win. Otherwise, their their plot can't advance. The only way he can do this is, as he says, unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. So Jesus is highlighting something. He is saying, look, I am here and I'm binding and restraining the works of the devil. I'm overpowering him. I'm dominating him. Uh, he's saying, I'm coming against Satan's power on earth and I'm coming against the, his power that he's displaying over 
the lives of people in, in bondage. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm tying up the enemy and his power. Now, the Apostle John, he later wrote about this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 reads that the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. But, but back to Mark here. Jesus responds to their charge with just stating, look, I have come to destroy the works of Satan. I'm here to advance against him and to dominate him right here in this region. Jesus continues, verse 28, Truly, truly I tell you, but that word truly is very important. It's the word amen. Uh, The word amen, we might say after we agree with something, we might say it after a prayer. It's a statement of agreement. It, 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 It comes from a Hebrew word that just means this is true. This is the truth. And so if, if I make a statement and you reply, amen, it's because you're, you're in agreement. You're saying, that's true. Well, Jesus begins the statement because he's like, he's saying, I want to overemphasize before I state it. So pay attention. So he says, truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, what is a blasphemy? He's still talking to the scribes here. He's saying people will be, forg- will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies. Blasphemy just means to defame someone, to slander someone, or to make an irreverent statement about someone. He's saying, look, people will be forgiven. You can be forgiven for all sorts of things that you blaspheme against Jesus, things that you're uttering. The things that people said against Jesus, they can be forgiven. For example, when, when Jesus was hanging on the cross at the crucifixion, you can read about this in, in, uh, in Luke uh, 23, verse 24, that Jesus is, he's dying on the cross. People are hurling their insults at him. They're mocking him. Uh, they're totally insulting him. And what does he do? He prays to the Father, and he prays this prayer. He prays, Father, and he's looking at this group of people who don't really understand what they're doing. They don't understand that they're that they're crucifying the Son of God. And he looks at the Father in anguish, he prays, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they're doing. They don't know. They're, they're blinded to what... They, 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 don't, they haven't seen, they don't fully understand. You know, a lot of those that were involved in his crucifixion, the Romans and others that were there, they, they don't know. Back to Mark 3, verse 28, he says this, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and, and whatever blasphemies that whatever blasphemies that they utter. So this right here is a forgivable sin to blaspheme Jesus. But then Jesus warns this group with a very, very serious statement. This is uh, Mark 3, verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they, and he's saying now, uh, Mark here is writing, you know, they, meaning the scribes, the teachers from Jerusalem, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, what does this mean, this phrasing here? What does it mean? Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. What does this mean? Well, these people were denying that Jesus was doing the work of God. They, they, but here's the problem. They had seen, they had the evidence of his healings. They could interview people that, were blind and now they see. They could interview people that were mute and now they're talking. They could interview people who uh, were demonized and now they were set free. They could interview uh, the girl who was risen from the dead. 
they, they essentially had seen the works of God, the freedom he was bringing. Uh, they saw his deliverance, his teaching. Uh, they could listen to what he taught. They, they saw his compassion, his claims. And here they were rejecting that he was empowered by the Spirit of God. They were rejecting that he had come from God. And in the most insulting way, uh, they were concluding that he actually had an unclean spirit. They're saying, look, he has come from Satan. And what Jesus is doing here is he's warning them to go no further. Don't don't step beyond this place, he's saying. There's a warning here. And we have some similar warnings in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews written to the Christian church about 30 years later. I want to show you one of them. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 reads this. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. Jesus is, Jesus put his power on display. He's saying, the writer of Hebrews is saying, uh, it was confirmed. It was spoken by the Lord Jesus. It was confirmed to those, to us, by those who heard him, by the apostles, God was testifying that Jesus is, is the Son of God. And on and on. But there's this warning here, again, about seeing the works of God and then rejecting his works. That that brings judgment. And Jesus is telling this group there, back in Mark 3, look, don't go any further to reject uh, these works and to make this statement you're making. You're on the edge of something. That is unforgivable. And so, here's the point of all this. Jesus' power, his power moves, or this forced people to draw some conclusions about the source of his authority. And some were drawing the wrong conclusions. But, I mean, just in summary, he nearly wipes out sickness from the whole region. I mean, think about that. Think about that in our day and age. He, he wipes out sickness in that region. He commands authority over the natural elements, the wind, the waves, the weather patterns. He's in control of all those things. He clears out opposing spiritual powers from the region. He he frees that region up from the works of the enemy. But here's the problem. With all of his demonstrations of power, Jesus couldn't simply be just a good teacher, just another teacher. In his day, like the other scribes, he couldn't just be that. Yes, he was a captivating teacher. He could hold the attention of massive crowds, but there were other people that were great teachers in those days. What made Jesus so different was his displays of power and his claims to be their Messiah. He claimed to be their Savior. Even today, many want to separate his teachings from his clear acts that only God could do, the acts of deity. Now, C.S. Lewis introduced the paradigm of the choice that Jesus is either uh, a liar, a, a lunatic, or Lord. There's really no middle ground. You've got to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. His family, you know, at this point in the story of Mark chapter 3, thought he was a lunatic. They said he's gone out of his mind. He's out of his mind. So they tried to restrain him, to rescue him. They were concerned for his safety. The religious authorities, those scribes that came from Jerusalem, they labeled him a liar. You know, they, they were saying he's driving out demons by the ruler of the demons himself. He's, he's possessed by Satan himself. Well, what about you? What, what have you decided about the identity of Jesus? As we've walked through these stories today, 
as we've walked through the, the displays of Jesus' power, in particular over sickness, over nature, and over the demonic, what have you decided about his identity? Lee Strobel, uh, a, a former atheist turned Christian, who he was the former legal editor of the, the Chicago Tri- Tribune, uh, he, he said this about Jesus. He was an atheist, and he studied and followed the evidence on, he did his own investigative research, and he was a reporter trying to, to understand uh, Christianity and its claims. And he made the conclusion that Jesus really was the Son of God. He said this, if, if Jesus is the Son of God, his teachings are more than just good ideas from a wise teacher. They are divine insights on which I can confidently build my life. And I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to respond to his power by considering taking one of these next steps. The first one is this. It's to yield to him as Lord. I would encourage you to do that today. If you've never done that before, let us know. If you're watching this live right now during our service time, let us know. Put it in the chat box. Uh, reach out to our campus uh, online ministry coordinator. Let us Let us know how we can serve you uh, for the first time, if you've never committed your life to Christ and you're ready to yield to him as Lord, if you've drawn the conclusion, he is Lord. He, he's, not, he's not crazy. He's not a liar. He, he is the Lord. I want him to be my Lord. Uh, we would love to come alongside you. We would love to help you firm up that decision today. The second thing is this, is to choose to trust his power this week over whatever you're facing. I hope if there's something we've done today is that we have highlighted Jesus' displays of power. Where do you need to experience that? Where do you need faith and obedience today? Or do you need to say, Jesus, I trust that you have all of the power. You care for me and you ultimately can. You can help me overcome whatever I'm facing. I'm looking to you. The third third step would be this. To read the full book of of Mark this week, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, This is the shortest of, of the biographies, the Gospels. Uh, on the life of Jesus. It's only 16 chapters. It's a pretty short read. You, it wouldn't take you too long to read through this. Maybe a few settings even. Uh, but sometime this week, would you consider reading the Gospel of Mark? Uh, this this book, it has the expressed purpose. Mark writes it in Mark 1.1. <laughs> His desire is that you would conclude that Jesus really is the Son of God. He says this, that this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's not hiding the fact that Jesus makes this bold claim that he is God's son. He is God himself in the flesh. And I hope you'll read from the book of Mark and learn more about what Jesus has done. It's really, really, uh, it's helpful as you read through uh, an entire, like you read the storyline. Sometimes we'll just look at a little tiny section, but I would encourage you, read, read the story for yourself. And, and see what conclusions you draw and see what God leads you to, how God leads you to respond to him. Hey, let's pray as we wrap up. Father, thank you for uh, the way we've looked at the displays of Jesus' power on earth. Uh, that power has not changed. Uh, thank you, Lord, that your power is made available uh, to us through a personal relationship with your son, Jesus. And I pray for each person that is is watching. Maybe there are some that have never yielded to Christ. And I pray that today, they would acknowledge that they need you. They would acknowledge their sin and turn away from it and turn uh, towards you to experience forgiveness and a fresh start in life. I pray for those that are wrestling through difficult circumstances in their life and they need to experience uh, the help that comes uh, through you 
and through your power in our lives. Uh, Father, I pray for those that uh, are in need of, of healing, those that are battling sicknesses, those that are battling, battling uh, dark, dark uh, struggles in their lives. Lord, I pray that, uh, that many who are watching wouldn't stay isolated, Lord, but that they would let others in for prayer and, and to share uh, your word with them. Um, we thank you, God, for, uh, for this time that we've devoted to you. I pray you would use it, God, for your purposes in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at occathome.com to learn more about how to connect with us. And join us again next week for another Orange Crest Community Church podcast. Have a great day.